You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Have you ever asked yourself, what is a judgment? I used to think that all of my judgments about people and the world were true. Today, I understand that they are just interpretations And an interpretation is simply a made-up story. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audiobooks, You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. A note about today's show. You may have heard it once before on this podcast. I'm bringing it back. Slightly edited because of its life-changing power. And I'm sure that you'll agree that even with the slight technical glitches that are in the recording, that they in no way diminish from the insights and authenticity of the material. Our special guest today may challenge some of your judgments about people. Your judgments about trust, honesty, intelligence, courage, and crime. His name is Louis Ferrante. This is Lou's second time on our show. He's an author, motivational speaker, business mentor, and TV documentary show host. But 
his life used to be an entirely different story. I am particularly excited and honored to have him with us again today, Lou. Welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life, and how is it going today, Lou? Good. Thank you, Lou, and hope you're well uh, also, and thank you for that flattering introduction. Hey, man, you earned it. Lou, in our previous interview, we talked about some life-changing subjects, and there was one thing that we didn't get to. It is definitely worth sharing with our storytellers today. Tell us about that moment when you were thrown into solitary confinement in the hole when you made a decision that turned your life around. Yeah, so, so I, I'm in prison, just to set the scene, and prison is a lot like what you see on TV. A lot, a lot of it is true. Um, what the worst part of it is is the loneliness, though, more so than the violence. If you could, if you could deal with the violence, then, then it's, it's the loneliness. Uh, you know, you're, you're removed from any family or loved ones or anyone who cares about you. There's absolutely no care. But anyway, I'm going through um, a, a different, I guess, a, a mental evolution in which I'm, I'm understanding the things that I had done on the street that led me to prison. So I'm starting to already become disenchanted with the life that I believed in. So that's that's one part of how my mind was feeling at the time. Just so you understand, it wasn't uh, completely sudden, although it was sudden, the, 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 uh, the pivotal moment. And the pivotal moment was, just to set the background for that, uh, I would go to the hole now and then, I'd get into a fight with somebody. Um, I was quick with my fists on the street. I was the same way in prison. If somebody uh, said something I, that I took as a threat, I hit them. Um, so I'd gone to the hole a few times for, for legitimate reasons. And on this one occasion, I went to the hole. Hole is solitary confinement. And I went to the hole for something I did not do. Um, I was living in, uh, on, it was a dorm at the time. It was a holdover dorm, a pretrial holdover dorm. And I was there for 36 months because me and my co-defendants were fighting different cases, all of us which kept us um, sort of like uh, retained, uh, detained there for so long. And I was living in a row with a lot of the older wise guys. I liked the older guys. I liked hanging around with the older guys. And one of them was probably 60-something. And he was a Sicilian gangster as well as an American gangster, he, which means he was, uh, as far as I know, he was straightened out with a Sicilian family uh, officially. And he was also a made member of an American, Italian-American family. Uh, so he was like a big uh, liaison between the Sicilian and American mob. Re highly respected guy. Anyway, the, uh, the hack on duty, which is the prison guard, uh, was nasty to us earlier in the day. He did not call us on time for our visits, which kept us waiting to see our families. And then by the time we got to see our families, they called a halt to the visits because they were only limited time. And we were, we were all disgusted with this guy. And he woke up and he, and he threw something at him, drew an apple at the guy. And he, he hit him, he beamed it at him. And the apples hit the guy square in the side of the head. Well, I guess probably the shine on the side of the eye. And um, and the guy hit the ground thinking he was being assaulted. And I think that other things started flying through the air too after that. But anyway, um, he, he ran out of the dorm, crawled out of the dorm, uh, you know, fear, in fear for his life because you got, you know, 125 convicts now that are mad at you and they're now throwing flying objects at you. Um, and you need backup. So he called for backup. And when they came up to backup, 
he pointed to the aisle that the guy was living in. And everybody, as I said, was like 60, 65 or better. I was the kid on, in, in the aisle. I was only 26 or so, and, uh, which was a kid compared to the other guys. And they figured it was me who would throw an apple. You know, the older guys, they, they figured wouldn't, wouldn't be so disrespectful to do a thing like that. It must be the kids. So they grabbed me and they dragged me to the hole. And uh, I said, I didn't do it. I didn't throw the apple at the guy. I didn't, assault, I didn't assault him. And assaulting a guard is a big charge. You get another five years in prison. I said, I didn't assault the guy. They said, well, you're going to be charged the whole nine. Uh, and if you didn't do it, tell us you did. So that's your business to find out. I wasn't a rat. I, didn't, I wasn't a rat coming in. I wasn't a rat while I was in. And I wasn't going to become a rat uh, on little things if I wasn't a rat on my big cases, which could have got me out of jail. So I said, listen, it's not my business to figure out who did it. That's your business. I'm telling you I didn't. So uh, P.S., they tortured me in the hole. Uh, tortured me not. They didn't, they didn't uh, stretch me on a rack or lay me on a bed of nails. But I wasn't fed. I, I didn't get my clothes. I didn't get a mattress. I didn't get a pillow. I had to wait for all those things an inordinately long time. And uh, at some point or another, I, the captain of the guards came by my cell one day and he opened a food slot. And the food slot's about waist high, rectangular opening in the door that you could open. And he said to me, uh, Did you throw the apple at my guard? You want to confess now or not? You know, knowing I'd gone through hell already. And I said to him, uh, I didn't throw the apple. Well, let me tell you another thing. And I went to grab his tie. And I wanted to yank, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to strangle the guy. You know, at least give him a good yank through the food slide, you know, put my feet up against it and pull, and uh, against the door and pull. And um, it was a clip-on. I pulled it off his neck. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, and I threw it back at him and I said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you, you filthy bastard or you dirty bastard. You know, it's a clip-on. And he, he took his finger and he, Put, put it in his collar and he said, you know, through the glass now. There's reinforced glass, obviously, that's probably about um, uh, neck high on the door, as opposed to the food slot, which is waist high. And he said, do you think we wear real ties with you animals in here? He says, look at yourself. You're an animal. You're in a cage. You know, you're in chains. And he was right. And it was a big wake-up moment. Because um, you were. You were put in chains. Anytime you leave the hole, you're placed in chains. Uh, to go to the shower, even, you're put in chains. Uh, if you go to court, you're placed in chains, and your hands are, uh, my hands, I was, I don't know if everybody's, not everybody at the time, but at least people who were, who were in uh, a higher security were placed, a black box was placed around their wrists to prevent their, their wrists from moving. So even though you had shackles around your waist holding your hands to your waist, you even had this, this iron black box around your wrists, which any movement in your wrist would, would cause immediate pain, and that prevents your hands from having any play within the chains. Uh, so he, 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 it was a wake-up call. You know, this guy called me an animal, and, and by the grace of God, I realized that he was right. At that point in my life, up to that point, I had conducted myself in all manner like an animal, in, 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 whether it was on the street, getting into a fist fight with somebody, and, and, and I bit people, believe it or not. I was a small guy. I was going to win the fight from when I was young. If I was wrestling with somebody who was overpowering me, I took a bite out of him. Um, I had, uh, I've been accused of shooting, stabbing people, you name it. I, 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 you know, uh, supposedly done and I ended up in a cage. And if, if prison wasn't enough of a, of an overwhelming experience to make you wake up and realize you're an animal and you have to be removed from society, the whole is a prison within a prison. And even though that I, I wasn't, 
necessarily guilty of this one specific incident. I had gone to the hole a number of times where I was guilty. So I'm saying as if prison isn't enough, I need to be placed in a cage within a cage. Um, so it really wakes you up. And this, this moment was, was, was one of the best things that happened to me because it was a big wake-up call. And I had a lot of time in isolation. God plays funny. I don't know if, you, if your listeners believe in God. I do. Uh, I believe in, uh, if you want to believe in fate, God, destiny, what have you, there is something that sort of is, is there. I feel there's always a higher power guiding our lives. And if we're sensitive to the instructions, um, we, we, we can uh, align ourselves with the proper destiny that, that, that's made, that's cut out for us. And this was a destiny that was cut out for me because after that wake up moment, I, I didn't have any distractions where I'm let out of the hole and I'm back to the card game or I'm back to BSing with the guys, you know, my fellow gangsters or whatever. I'm, I'm instead locked in an isolation uh, room uh, with, you know, no, you know, dark, dim, dank, uh, with just time to think. And I thought through my life. Uh, I didn't have like a wake up God moment. I, that, that was far from me at that point. There was no hallelujah moment. I did not believe in God at that point, but I did believe that, that I woke up and I had to rethink my, my life. And I did begin to do that in that isolation. And by the time I was released from the hole, um, usually like, you know, the, 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 your fellow mobsters, for keeping your mouth shut, you're always, uh, you know, you're always respected and part of the gang. And we were all doing that on our cases, on our FBI cases. But now, uh, uh, in addition to that, when you go to the hole and you keep your mouth shut and you did and you got locked up for something you didn't do and you still kept your mouth shut, it's like an extra reward. So everybody was like, you know, giving me, uh, you know, the big applause, you know, uh, forget, you know, when I got out of the hole that, you know, I did, I did hold time for somebody else. And I didn't want to be bothered with it. I, for, for the first time in my life, I could give a shit about everybody's praise. It didn't mean anything to me. Whereas normally I would be, uh, you know, enamored by everyone's praise. And obviously, just so you know, Lou, you and your listeners, I didn't speak like this back then. You know, it was more like, yeah, you know, I didn't throw the F and Apple, F him, you know, yeah. they want to lock me up for things I didn't do, F them. You know, it was a little different, but, um, but, but, uh, but my mind was already beginning to change, although my language wasn't my mind was definitely shifting in a different direction. And, uh, and the things that maybe excited me, by the time I got out of that hole, didn't. The ordinary things that normally excited me. So it was a pivotal moment. And then I, uh, I went through a long period of, of how do you change? You know, how do you change? What, what, what steps do you take? And what steps do you take to change in hell? You know, you're not, you're not, in, you're not in a regular society or civilization where if you want to make a decision, um, you know, I mean, people's hands are bound in society as well. It's difficult to make changes in their lives. It's not always easy. But I think it's very difficult in prison, too, because you, you're in such a cutthroat, animalistic environment um, where if you want to be a nice guy, you can't. Uh, if you want to educate yourself, where? You know, you're going to just join a university or get some classes online. You know, it's not happening in, in jail. So where do you begin? And uh, I, I had to begin by starting to detach myself from the other gangsters around me who were my only friends up until that point in my life. That was a hard decision. And also, too, I began, uh, I, I asked for books because I felt like none of the, well, I didn't realize they were philosophical questions until later in my life, but what, what amounted to philosophical questions that I had, they could not be answered 
by the people around me. So uh, that led to me saying, maybe I should read a book. I had never read a book before in my life. And although I went to school, I went to you know, grammar school and high school uh, up to 12th grade, I never read a book. And I know plenty of people who never did. My, my father went to high school, and uh, the first book he ever read in his life was my memoir when he was 70 years old. So, you know, you know not, not everybody, you know, a lot of people go to school and don't read books. So they just read enough. They read the cliff notes or they read enough to do the, do the homework. And, you know, no one sits down and reads a book cover to cover. Not a lot of people. I didn't say, I didn't mean no one. But not a lot of people. And I didn't. Uh, but in prison, I began reading and I fell in love with books. I had, I had very little patience before I went to prison. Um, I'm still somewhat of an impatient guy, but in a different way. I've learned to discipline myself. But uh, books were tre tremendous... Um, beginning to disciplining myself in the way of patience where you sit down and you read three, four, five hundred pages and, and you know, you finish it and then you contemplate what you read. And then I had the time, the luxury of isolation to do that. So that was a great, great beginning in my life where I was in the worst place you could imagine, but it turned out to be the best place. Wow. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, uh, when you were in the hole that, that, that time, how, how long did they keep you in there? Uh, so probably, you know, I forget now, it's a long time, probably a few weeks, um, you know, it was probably a few days of the BS where, you know, first I didn't get clothes, they take your clothes from you and they give you a jumpsuit when you go to the hole, make sure you don't have drugs, you can't overdose in the cell, make sure you don't have a razor blade, you can't kill yourself in the cell, so they take your clothes to make sure there's nothing sewn into, you know, the waistband or the cuff or whatever. And they give you this jumpsuit that's issued to you in the hole, and I wasn't given that. So first, I wasn't given the clothes. I didn't get my mattress. I didn't get my pillow. So that took a few days. That's what I considered to be when, in the beginning when we began this conversation. Like, you know, it's light torture. It's not real torture. But it's deprivation. You're deprived of something. Um, and that's, you know, it's a form of torture. When you're isolated and you don't have clothes or pillow or mattress and you're laying on a steel bunk, a cold steel bunk in the dark. Uh, but anyway, eventually that, that, that subsided after a few days. I got what I needed. Um, and there was one incident where I, he didn't feed me. The captain of God said, no food. And uh, I said, ah, they can't starve me. I'm in America. There's no way they could starve me. But you don't realize, actually, what they can do, what they can't do. You know, what happens to people. And, and, you know, a lot of things do happen to people, mysterious things, in prison. And there are a lot of cover-ups and stuff. I've seen a guy get, who was handcuffed and thrown down a flight of stairs, face first, handcuffed, but with his hands behind his back. So, you know, if he went on the news and said, I was done, you know, that happened to me in American prison, they'd say, what do you mean, the Turkish prison, an Iraqi prison? No, an American prison, you know, maybe, we might, actually, the public might have a hard time believing that, maybe before, like, things like Abu Ghraib came out. But, you know, now, nowadays, you know, prison breeds a sadistic mentality in a way. Um, but anyway... Uh, getting back on track, probably a few days of that stuff, and then um, and then they, you know I lingered there for a little while. They didn't let me out right away, so I don't remember exactly, but it, it was a stint in the hole. It gave me enough time to think, put it that way. Wow! Now, when you say they 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 didn't give you your clothes, did they let you stay in there naked? Well, first I was naked, then I did get clothes. Wow! Yeah, first I went to wow. sleep naked. I went to sleep with my hands. I can remember laying on the steel bunk and, and putting my both hands over my uh over my, my private, you know, my crotch, because it just instinctively cover yourself. You don't feel like, you know, laying there naked. Right. And probably, you know, once I fell asleep, I'm sure that, that, that changed, but that position changed. But when I fell asleep, I had my hands over my crotch. Um, and then I got clothes, and then I got a mattress, and then I got a pillow. They didn't do it for long. It wasn't like, uh, 
You know, and I want to I want to make sure I point out, Lou, too. For every bad guy in the U.S. prison system, as far as administration or, or, or guards are concerned, there were a hundred good ones, and that's the truth, Lou. When I became a different person and I woke up and was enlightened in, in a number of ways, I realized that a lot of the guys and, and women around me, a lot of a lot of good, strong, courageous uh, and, uh, uh, women of great integrity, working in that, that system, where they do their job, and if you cross them. They got to come down on you, but if you don't, they're going to be, go out of their way to, to, to be as kind as possible to you. And I was called when those escapees from uh, Dannemora, New York, fled, and they were making their way to the Canadian border. I was called on Fox News, CNN, and I pointed that out. I wanted to make sure that there could have been a couple of dirty prison guards in there that allowed these guys weapons or you know the, the means of escape. But but I I, I cautioned all the viewers, and I do the same with your listeners, to realize that don't don't condemn the few for the many, because for the most part, just like Abu Ghraib, I think I think that 99.9% of our soldiers are sent to do a job, and they go and do it. And and uh, I get mad a lot, too. I'll throw this in really quickly. I get mad. A lot of people condemn the war and condemn the soldiers because of it, the two wars that we fought in, in the last uh, so many years. But I think that people have to realize that we're a democracy. And, and we vote for our leaders, and even if we're against the war, these, these men and women are sent to do a job, and they're very heroic and courageous to do it. You, know, you and I don't want to go there and get blown up, but they do it. They risk their lives, and, and, and a lot of people are sort of like, um, you know, cold towards them. I've seen it. I've seen it, and, I, and it bothers me. Uh, and I think, like, pictures of Abu Ghraib, again, that's just for, like, one in a million. For the most part, they're just doing their job, and, and, and uh, we have a lot to thank them for. Same thing with prison guards. So I just want to point that out because it's important. And yeah. once I became a different person, I realized that they really weren't my enemy. They were just people doing their job. Well, the, that, I mean, the fact that you came to that awareness is a real testament to your growth, my friend, because in order to feel that way, um, you've got to uh, overcome ego and a lot of other forces inside of you. So I really applaud you for that. Now, you said that you were a lot of time in solitude to read. So after the whole, you were still kept by yourself? Was no, that- so a- after, after the whole, you know, I might have gone to the whole, you know, now and then. I did drop, drop the, 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 the bit. You know, I mean, you, you, you could go to the hole when something's not even your fault in jail. You know, they could lock up a couple of guys pending investigation. Uh, you could land, when I landed in Lewisburg, before I was freed into the population because they have to clear you to make sure that there's no hit on, hits on you in Lewisburg. It was a very dangerous prison at the time. You spend a couple of weeks in the hole there. But for the most part, after that moment, most of my prison sentence would be more so considered a self-imposed isolation, where a lot of times, like, for example, I was in county jails when I was shifted from federal to state prison. I spent time in a county jail. And inside that county jail, um, you would be you would be locked up like 23 hours a day and you would be let out an hour for recreation. Uh, or sometimes they did 18 hours a day. You're allowed out six hours with, with different times where you return to yourself. And I would just stay in my cell. Uh, and what I did was I convinced myself that, first of all, a lot of people, like as soon as the bars um, uh, crack are opened, you know, they come out of their cells like a horse coming out of the gate at Aqueduct. And, um, and, and, you know, for me, I mean, it's desperate. It's sad because they, they're desperate to get out of that hole, that, that, that cell. 
uh, you, you, no, I shouldn't say that hole, that's solitary, but that cell, which has become their hole for that duration. And I would just forego. I would say, I, would say, I don't need to go out. I'm just going to keep reading. What am I going to, what do I have out there? The television room, ping pong table, cards. I don't need that stuff. I want to keep reading. So I would, and I convinced myself that uh, that little bit of taste of freedom, allowing you out of yourself for a few hours a day or an hour or six hours or whatever the case was, was a fake sense of freedom. It wasn't real freedom because you're still in just a bigger cage um, where the real freedom for me was inside my cell, reading and allowing my mind the freedom to roam uh, through books and learning. And, and that's where I realized where, where the real freedom lie for me. And I was able to, to basically, um, as I said, you know, give myself a self-imposed isolation that I appreciated and didn't, and didn't despise. And, and that was a real, real big moment for me, too, where I could sit in my cell all day and read all week or month and just come out to eat. And plenty of times I missed meals. I just didn't want to put the book down and say, ah, I could go another four hours without a meal, no big deal. You know, or, or I'd sneak back food back to my cell or I'd have commissary food and try to get through the next uh, chow meal without having to go to the chow hall so that I could basically, um, basically just keep reading and keep my nose to the grindstone. What I, what I really love about what you just said is that I, I believe that what you described uh, applies to um, life outside of prison as well. That people who are in lives that they don't like will escape, they think, into distractions constantly, um, which really don't serve them, as opposed to spending quality time uh, working on something that will help them to grow. And it's exactly what you just described. The only difference was that you were in a physical prison. Other people are in um, prisons of their own making. You know, now, where did you get your books? So I was fortunate at the time to have, before I even realized there was a prison library, um, it's actually a funny story. My, my friend was, and he's still a friend of mine, he's still around, um, and he, yeah, he's removed from the life now. A lot of the people who were, uh, who were close to him um, are basically, you know, dead or in jail, so he, he sort of drifted away from the life. But um, hold on, Lou, one second. She was trying to get in. I'm sorry, Lou. It's okay. <clears throat> so I'll start again. I just, I got cats here, Lou. <laughs> so do I. I have one. <laughs> really? Yeah, they're the greatest. Man. I never had a pet in my life till I came home from prison, and they're amazing. What? How many, um, how many do you have? I got three. They were all, they were all, they were all from the street. What are, they, what are their names? Uh, well, my, my, my beautiful, uh, I say my wife, we're together so long. My, my wife um, named them Maisie, Miles, and Cosette. Actually, Cosette I named because she was the third one. And um, Maisie and Miles, she named. She named them after one of those John Candy movies with Maisie and Miles. I think the two kids were named. <laughs> and um, Cosette, I named. She found Cosette on a hill where we used to live. And uh, she was starving. She had her ribs showing and stuff. And, and we took her in. And she's beautiful. And she was like the third cat. So the other two were close with each other. And they didn't get along in the beginning. So I'd pick her up and put her in our own room. We had a guest room. We put her in a guest room at night so that they couldn't kill each other at night until they, until, yeah, until they got acquainted. Now they're all precious. They're not mean-spirited at all, but they just couldn't get, they couldn't connect with each other in the beginning. So, you know, like Cosette from Les Mis by Victor Hugo, she used to live under the stairs. Oh, yeah. Like stepchild. Yeah. So I said, I said, this poor cat's like Cosette. 
and we named her Cosette uh, from after the book Les Mis. And, um, and, and it ended up that they're precious. I never had a pet in my life. And I, 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 man, I recommend them to anybody. The only thing that's very sad is if, you know, I've seen pets. I haven't had any that died yet. And I dread the moment. But, you know, we've had pets that are sick. And it's tough. Yeah. You know, it's, your heart bleeds for them. It's like having children where, where your heart bleeds for them. I know. Yeah. Anyway, so, th- thanks for that. Thank, thanks for that, 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 that little aside. So you were saying it was a funny story about how you got turned on to books. You said you had a friend. What was yeah, that? Yeah, so basically I had a buddy of mine. He was the caretaker for John Gotti's main social club in Queens, the, the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club over there. Um, he worked there. He worked across the street in John Gotti Jr.'s club. He was around him. He was around John Gotti and his family from before anybody ever heard the name John Gotti. When John Gotti was just a soldier, when John Gotti was just a captain, and before John Gotti was the boss, he had been around. And, um, and he, was, he was the caretaker of the club. You know, he walked in, he poured a drink, and he was there. He was, he was very, he had a lot of wisdom in a, in a lot of ways because he'd been around so many people so long. He was sort of like the fly on the wall. And anyway, we used to play cards in the winter. I'm sorry, in the summer. We used to play cards, and he would have his shirt off, and he was a big, fat guy. And, you know, he was like maybe 450 pounds at the time. He's probably close to that now, I'd say. But um, <clears throat> he had uh, tattoos all over his body. And some of the tattoos were like biblical verses. And, you know, so I, I remember reading stuff on his body that came from quotes, that came from books. So, I, you know, it intrigued me back then. And it, I remember that when I came out of the hole, I said, you know, well, who can I ask for books? Who the hell do I know that ever read a book? Nobody in my family reads. Um, no, none of my friends read. You know, we're all criminals. Uh, who the frig do you ask for a book? So I thought of Fat George was his name. He's a good man. And I said, hey, you know, I called him up. I affectionately, I called him a fatso. Nobody else could call him fatso, by the way. He reminded me that somebody years ago was in a nightclub and we were walking down a flight of stairs. It was a two-story nightclub. And uh, we were walking down a flight of stairs, and he reminded me that somebody was making fun of him from behind. And I was behind that guy. He, he, he told me, I didn't even remember it. I, I don't, but then he told me I kicked the guy down the flight of stairs because you, you couldn't make fun of him or call him Fatso, but we could. Um, but anyway, so I called him up. I said, Hey, hey, Fatso. I said, You know, you read books, right? Yeah. Can you send me some books? Sure, I'll send you whatever books you want. What are you into? You know, boobs, asses, what do you like? I says, no, no, not those kind of books. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I said, send me, uh, send me books to read. And he said, what kind of books you looking to read? And I said, I don't know. I said, I never read a book before in my life. Go to a store, go to a bookstore, you know, grab a broad, tell her about me. Maybe she'll have some recommendations. I have no idea. So, and I wouldn't call a woman a broad today. But, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so he goes, he, I, you know, go about my business and I get a call from, from the, uh, R&D, receiving and delivering room, my book, my books, uh, my package is in. I open up the package and there's three books in there. And I, to this day, I have them. I have them in my other house to this day. Napoleon by Vincent Cronin, biography, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, and uh, Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. What the frig? What is he doing? So I call him up. I says, hey, fatty, hey, I appreciate Thank you for sending the books. But where'd you get these ideas? Because I went did what you said. I went to the store. He goes, I told the, the broad all about you. He says, uh, uh, and then she gave me those books. What'd you tell her? He says, I told you you were short and bossy. With that, she gave me those books. <laughs> and Hitler. So, so, so 
least the books that I had, the first books I read. And, uh, I, and Lou, I struggled through those books. It was very, very difficult to read them, obviously. When you've never, you know, I was looking, I was probably looking more for like Huck Finn, the adolescent version, or Tom, you know, Tom, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, or, or uh, yeah, I don't even know, Gulliver's Travels, you know, I don't know. But um, I wasn't looking for those. And I struggled through them, I read them. I had a very difficult time uh, understanding them. I had a very difficult time with the vocabulary words. And at some point, I, I made a promise to myself that I would, I would look up every word that I passed that I didn't know. And I bought a dictionary in jail for a couple of stamps, maybe a stamp. And I started to look up every word. And, uh, and basically, uh, that's how I started to build my vocabulary. I would write down every vocabulary word and, and study it at night before I went to sleep and then go over my, my vocabulary sheet again in the morning. You know, I probably remembered something like that from grammar school, but I was doing it again in my 20s. And, um, and it was a good, a good thing because I started to expand my vocabulary. I started to understand more and more of what I was reading, and I started to read faster. And before you know it, I went from reading a book a month to a book a week to a book a day. And, uh, and then for the next many years, I read a book a day. A book a day? Yeah, book a day. So if it was if any, you know, I mean, if it was five, six hundred pages, it took me a couple of days, maybe three. But um, but if it was a good three hundred page book, you know, not not super small space spacing, I'd knock it out in a day. So uh, did, a lot of times, a book a day. Sometimes you, it took me two or three, but for the most part, I read a book a day. Did you do anything about like learning speed reading? Because that's no, that, not speed reading, but you know. I, I to this day I'm not a speed reader, but I but I will say that time is of the essence. You know, time is very important in everything we do. And I was reading, uh, you know, with with no distractions. You know, you, you might, you know, you need to speed read in the real world, which is which is much faster than that world. You know, you have a mortgage to pay. You can't sit with a book 18 hours when you have to worry about you know the tax man and the credit card companies and keeping the gas and the electric on. Um, you know, I had, I had the luxury of isolation where I could read 18 hours and you could, you know, 300 page book in 18 hours, you could leisurely knock it out in that time. Wow. So now what literature did you, uh, did, did you begin to explore and really get excited about? Well, which, which ones, uh, which writers started to impact you the most? Uh, so I would say that I gravitated in the beginning towards, I liked, I liked learning about history. Um, so I gravitated towards histories and biographies and learning about the world around me. Uh, not only the, the, the world around me as it is, but learning about the world around me um, in terms of how it became the way it is. That's why I enjoy history. Um, and that started opening up huge worlds for me. You know, like I, I grew up in Queens, so Flushing has a huge Chinese population. You know, where's China? I didn't know where freaking China was. China's in Flushing, right? Where the freak is China? <laughs> you know, so, you know, then I'm reading and I, I find out where China is and how it's, you know, uh, uh, borders uh, Southeast Asia and, and, and shares uh, borders with Mongolia and Russia and Tibet. And then I learned Chinese history, Sun Yat-sen, uh, Mao Zedong, Chou Enlai. Uh, so I start to, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, I start to realize that these are people that carved China's uh, um, uh, current state of, 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 uh, of being. Uh, how it became China today has a lot to do with 
who who was in charge when you know when China w was China yesterday. And these things intrigued me. And then I read science. I loved science. How 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 things happen and how the world is connected through physics and stuff. So I enjoyed that. It was all new worlds for me. And you know what was nice about it, Lou, was um, I was doing it. You know, when you're doing it and the teacher tells you to do it, I'm, I have an instinctive rebellious attitude towards anything and everyone. Uh, so if the teacher tells me, read this, you read it, you know, go after yourself. Yeah, I mean, just because he told me to read it. That's, that was my attitude when I was younger. But now I was, I was forming my own curriculum. You know, I took, I went wherever my mind took me. And that was tremendously enjoyable to me. Now, I, I also want to point out, this is an important thing that, you know, to, for everyone to know, that a lot of times people may have children or, you know, or nephews and nieces that are, you know, seem to be underachievers or they, you know, they get straight D's or F's in school. They could be the most brilliant kids in the classroom. They're just you know, not really regimented kids. You know, give them something, find that kid something that he or she likes and you may have Einstein on your hands. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that's big, you know, we can't expect every single mind to cookie cutter into the classroom and, and follow this teacher's curriculum and read this and study that and, and see, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, and then let's judge the kid based on how they, how they score on this test that I'm giving them according to what I told them to study. That's not how you score people. You know, this, this is a, this was an interesting revelation for me. Because had I been given free realm or had somebody put the right thing in front of me when I was younger, maybe I wouldn't have been in prison because my mind was starving for education. You know, even my father, you know, I, I learned when I came home from jail, my father passed back in July, but I learned when I came home from jail um, that my father had a brain starving for, 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 for learning, for education, but never had an opportunity. Um, so we all have the same human brains. We all have that inquisitive brain that can invent things, that could, that could uh, come up with formulas, that could, you know, if given the right formula in our own lives, though, to become that person that can do that. And, and we have to realize that, you know. I know when I look out the window and, and a guy passes by, with, you know, the landscaper with the blower on his back, you know, passes by my, the, the, the front or back of my house, I know that that he has the same mind as Albert Einstein, but he just didn't have the same set of circumstances or the same upbringing. Uh, you know, and, and if, if he did, maybe he could have come up with, uh, you know, how the synapses connect within the brain. I don't know, but we're all built the same way. And, and, and I learned that in prison, that I was able to, that I really might have been a good student had somebody sat down with me and said, what do you want to study? But nobody had ever taken that time with me. So anyway, I'd like to point that out because I feel like I lived it in prison where I, you know, I pr I've proven in my life I've become an international best-selling author. My books are in 16 languages. Uh, and, and a lot of the kids that were great in school, uh, you know, are drunk at a bar right now. Um, and and it, 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 it's, they, they, may have, they may have been uh, better formed for that, for that sort of uh, structure, but, you know, other kids aren't. That's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful insight. Uh, are you aware of the book called The Einstein Factor? I'm not, but I studied a lot of Einstein. I've read, I've read dozens of his books because I, I actually wrote a book about the human brain, and Einstein has a lot to do with that book. Uh, it's called The Three-Pound Crystal Ball, 
I uh, I actually yeah. bought it on um, on Kindle. I just haven't uh, I haven't gotten into it yet because I'm still reading uh, Unlocked. But the Einstein factor, a proven new method for increasing your intelligence by Win Wenger. Actually, uh, the reason I bring it up because it says what you're saying that the Einstein factor is in every single human being. Like you said, the guy who's working on the property, the guy who's uh, clean, you know, the picking up the garbage, whatever, that in that person's mind, there's that potential. That's, that's the truth. That's yeah. wonderful. I think you'll love the book. So which, which literature, which works of fiction really began to... Impact? Oh, okay. So if you want to go into works of fiction, because I did read a lot of that too. And the reason I fell in love with the, 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 the classics, for example, and the ancient classics as well, but, but not specifically the ancient classics, but I did read Homer, uh, Iliad, the Odyssey. I read Virgil, um, the Aeneid. Uh, I read uh, up until, you know, Chaucer, uh, Petrarch, you name it, I read them. But the modern classics, for example, uh, modern works of classical fiction, such as Victor Hugo, as I said, Les Mis, uh, War and Peace um, by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky's books, um, uh, the Bronte sisters. Um, there, were, there were a number of books that fascinated me. Uh, fictional books, and what I realized that that's you know that became my way of learning how to write. I by studying the you know, every time you read a book, for example, let's say War and Peace, you know you have um, Tolstoy's greatest and Anna Karenina, Karenina, Anna Karenina. Am I pronouncing that right? It's uh, since I yeah, I, I yeah. think you're talking about uh, Anna Karenina. Karenina, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. So when you read these books, for example, like by Tolstoy, everything Tolstoy ever knew about writing are in those books. There's nothing, you know, if you just read the book, you don't have to get a, you don't need really a lecture on Tolstoy. You just have to read the book with a very, very analytical eye. How does Tolstoy begin and end a chapter? How does Tolstoy develop a plot? And you have to be cognizant of these things and maybe jot notes as you read them. And that's what I did. So when I would read these great works of fiction, I also saw there was great moral value in these great works of fiction because back then, you know, now we don't have time to pontif pontificate, uh, you know, we don't have time to write a book where we teach people lessons. Uh, it's either a self-help book that you have to read and you're going to learn something from this big guru or, or it's uh, a novel that's just, you know, we don't want to we don't want to lose your attention, so it's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to make it a little, uh, you know, the woman scantily clad, and you know, or it's about a little love here, or a little violence there, and we're in and out of it. <laughs> these novels, yeah, these these older novels, they took a long time to develop uh, the characters and the plots, and there was great lessons in them. How uh, this one reacted to that, how that one reacted to this, how how uh, someone is forced to make a decision and under this great ultimatum, they make this decision in this manner. Uh, Les Mis, for example, I mentioned um, uh, earlier, um, Victor Hugo, you know, that was the whole tapestry of French society back then, the different levels of French society that he was, he was highlighting and what was good and bad about it. And it applies to every society today. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing in there. You have Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean, the criminal, who I could obviously relate to, who wasn't a bad guy. You know, he stole bread to survive and he helped people while he was in, you know, you know, while he was a fugitive. Wasn't a bad guy. Uh, you know, he had a good heart. Then you have the, the priest who was willing to forgive a theft in his own house. You have these great works of fiction that give you so much. And that's how I learned how to write. I, by reading these works of fiction, I learned how to basically put, put chapters together on my own. You know, I never took a writing class. You learn to put together a chapter, put together, um, uh, you know, develop a character, uh, exit a character. You know, if you got to get rid of a character, how do you do it? Um, it? It goes on and on. That's fabulous, man. That really, really, I mean, you're right. Uh, but it takes um, a certain passion, dedication, and focus to learn it that way without actually being told this mm-hmm. is how you do it. That, that's, that's really, by the way, there's a book you'll probably love. Uh, it's called Writing for Story. And uh, it was written by a guy named John Franklin, who actually is a, uh, a journalist. And he talks about how you take real life stories and you dramatize them so that you can present those truths in a way that's very, very captivating to people. Writing for story, John Franklin. Now, I, I think I heard you say, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Proust was, was big on your list. I loved Proust, yeah. Proust was big. And, you know, when, uh, I wrote, when I wrote Unlocked, I put in a beautiful quote from Proust and in the beginning of Unlocked. I don't have it in front of me, but um, it's, it's a quote about, you know, basically uh, most of us, if not all of us, could relate to it, uh, you know, about who we are. And Proust was great. I mean, you know, there, there were two authors, Proust and Thomas Wolfe, not Thomas Wolfe, the, the, the contemporary one, uh, who wrote, I think, um, uh, was it The Right Stuff or something, or something else he wrote, the, but the older Thomas Wolfe, who died in 1938, who wrote Look Home with Angel, You Can't Go Home Again. I consider like Proust and Thomas Wolfe very, very similar, where they ramble on, uh, you know, for pages and chapters and hundreds of pages, and they go on and on. But you're lost in their writing. Not necessarily, you know, like sometimes I'll, I'll scratch my head and go, where the hell is he going with this? You know, like, I mean, I'm lost, but the writing is so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, you know, you turn the page and you get like this amazing, like a a wake up where you go, oh my gosh, that's where he was leading to? This is absolute genius. You know, I had no idea he was going here. And I have notes all over like my volumes of Proust where I've written that, where, you know, I'll write at the end of a chapter, literally I'd write quote unquote, verbatim. I had no idea where the hell Proust was going for the last six pages, but I stuck with it because the writing was beautiful, and now I am blown away, you know, because he winds it up in such a magnificent manner. Um, I loved Proust so much that I also read uh, a biography about Proust, and I found that his life was horrible, and that was interesting, too, to learn that. Um, he wasn't like the nicest man in the world. Uh, he was very like, you know, we all think of the French as extremely arrogant, um, which, which a good part of the French are. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, but, but the French are good too in a lot of ways, but they're arrogant people, you know, they, and they, maybe they have a right to be, who knows. But, but Proust had that great, tremendous 
arrogance. You know, he had he had a um, I think his mother his mother pampered him, and um, and then you know, I, you know, I, I mean, I read some things. You know that that I, I probably didn't want to talk about. Who knows if they're true or not? Um, but he was also an amazing writer, and he has uh, you know he gave himself up to to that art, and he's left the world uh, some beautiful, 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 beautiful literature. What's your favorite book by him? Uh, what was it? Swan's Way, the whole multi-volume thing. Swan's Way and uh, what is it? Six volumes. I have the three-volume edition. I read the Montrose, I think, volume. I read. Montrose or Montrose uh, translation. Uh, are you familiar? No, actually, I'm not. And uh, yeah. I got to admit to you, I am a. Um, I, I majored in English literature, but I never delved into Proust. So yeah. I'm, I'm looking yeah. in here in Search of Lost Time, volumes one to seven. There you go. Uh, um, uh, and it's Scott. The Scott Montrose edition, I think, was the was the pre the preeminent translation. That's the one I read. Is uh, that is that does that come up, Lou? Right now, I'm looking at I, Scott, yeah, Scott Moncrief by Marcel Proust and C.K. Scott Moncrief in Search of Lost Time, That's it, volumes yeah. one to seven, yeah. the 100 greatest novels of all time. Uh, and, and by the way, that's available on Kindle for $2.34. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. what would you say if you had to say the one of the, yes, yeah, Swan's Way is here. What was the greatest uh, insight that was meaningful to you that you got from Proust? Uh, you know, well, probably how, and this led to my, my book, The Three Pound Crystal Ball, in some ways, uh, how memory works. You know, he would, he would talk about how, you know, like a whiff of a tea or a whiff of a flower or what have you would bring back memories of the whole scene where he was sitting with his, his, his aunt and his grandmother or whoever. And, and it was interesting the way the mind works, how the memory is stored, you know, somewhere in these hidden chambers in the folds of our brain are these beautiful memories that we've had in life. And, you know, sometimes you might be driving and a song comes on the radio and you're catapulted back in time 40 years in your life. And you suddenly, you know, you remember your sister or, or, or maybe your brother who died of something and he's not around anymore, but it's so vivid it's as if he's there. Um, or you remember your first love, or, or, or your mother and father, or, or you know, some, um, sometimes the memories are, are um, and I have a theory about this one, they'll hopefully read, write about it, but how we could possibly deal with traumatic incidents as well, and how we could sort of, uh, because that's called to mind by certain memories as well, where the memory sort of like uh, tugs back this, you know, tugs us back into the past to a place where we don't want to be. But that was the big take-home value of Proust uh, as, as far as that is concerned, but as far as um, in, in terms of a writer, I would say that his writing style was just brilliant. And, and it's not something you read like a Hemingway where it's short declarative sentences and you know, you're done with the book in a few hours. Um, this is something, it's a great, great uh, um, endeavor to sit down and read Proust, to just read one volume. And it's even, it's even a struggle sometimes, as I said, to get through a page or, or a chapter because you might scratch your head and say, where the hell is this guy going? It just seems like a ramble of words. But at some point, when you do realize he has intentions and he's leading you somewhere, that's when the genius moment pops and you're like, wow, now I know why this guy's still around, his books. Wow, that's beautiful. You know, what you just described about uh, memory and the senses and smell, that's at the heart of um, 
the method acting. They, they have a whole exercise called sense memory, where to uh, get in touch with a real emotion, you'll use your senses to bring those emotions to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating stuff. Lou, I can't thank you enough. And I know that this dialogue will continue because it is extremely rich. Yeah, and, definitely, uh, Lou. And we'll, we'll connect, you know, even if uh, after I film my next series or something, we'll, we'll reconnect and talk about that, you know, whatever, anything, anytime, bro. Absolutely. Lou, thank you again for contributing such amazing value to our show today. Storytellers, thank you once again for joining us live today. I know that this is a show you're going to want to pay forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, at the website, you can all download for free an ebook that I have created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Send your comments, your takeaways to lewis at changeyourstorypodcast.com. And during the next week, really dig deep. Examine your judgments about the world, about people, about experiences you've had. And have the courage to challenge them, maybe even throw them away. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.